Welcome to Garfield Memorial Church. We are one church in three locations, Pepper Pike, Ohio, South Euclid, Ohio, and Liberia, Africa. Together, we seek to widen the circle through our core values of diversity, safety, authenticity, growth, and forgiveness. To learn more about Garfield Memorial Church, visit our website at garfieldchurch.org. And now, may you be blessed and inspired by our weekly podcast of the message from the 10 a.m. Sunday morning Mosaic worship service. Garfield Memorial Church, widening the circle. Happy New Year. I haven't had the chance to say that to you. Um, May we have a blessed New Year. We are kicked off a new teaching series to begin this year. Pastor Scott started last week uh, entitled Welcome. We're talking about hospitality. It's a very, very important spiritual discipline in the Bible. And our key verse is from Hebrews, do not neglect to practice hospitality to strangers, to friends, to, to all others, because in so doing, some of you have entertained angels unaware. I love that. Hebrews tells us, don't neglect hospitality. And if you read First Peter, he said, don't do hospitality with grumbling. Don't grumble about it when you do it. I think those two things, if we could put those together and package them in today's day and age, it would be an amazing medicine for the world right now. Because the world is not doing very well on hospitality, if you haven't noticed. Whether it's welcoming people from different countries, whether it's welcoming people from different political persuasions or cultural backgrounds, uh, we've seemed to retreat into this kind of isolationism. We sit in front of our computer terminals, we go on social media, we go on the internet and we find everybody that's like us. It's, It's the problem that the church has struggled with, in my opinion, especially in the West for ages. Uh, Instead of being with diverse others, our mission statement is widen the circle, connecting diverse people, all of us, together uh, under our common brokenness and going to Jesus. Now, for too many years, churches were birds of a feather that flocked together. And I think we're doing that in our society right now. We'd rather just be in our little enclaves than practice the biblical mandate for welcoming, right? Putting a welcome mat in our hearts and our homes and opening that up uh, to all kinds of different people. And I loved how Scott kicked us off last week by saying that our ability to welcome others is really based upon our ability to welcome God and and to throw open the doors of our hearts to God. I say, you know, when we first come to Christ, and I know this was my story, we let God in a little bit, right? We let him into parts of our lives and then, boy, do we call on him when we need him. But, but Scott was talking about real hospitality, you know, is letting God into all of our lives. I love this story about Amy's dog. Were you here last week? Amy's dog. I, I, I laughed about that. Of course it's Amy's dog because it's not behaving yet. <laughs> I remember my kids growing up, my wife and I, when one of the kids did something wrong, I said, well, you need to go talk to your son, Right? But, it's, but the truth is, uh, we do that. And Amy, Amy's dog, Scott's dog, is only allowed into parts of the house right now. I thought that was such a s- strong image. But as we grow into maturity, right, we allow God into all parts of our hearts and all parts of our lives. Every little woman. You know, God is there anyways. You know, but, but this is part of our problem. And so I'm going to continue on that. And next week, 
Uh, Steve is going to talk about, you know, welcoming the Bluff community. We're going to get into welcoming each other. And I'm serious. Some of y'all come down to Nordonia and have my back. It's been special, man. No, it's been special because there was some real hostility around this event. And I had a pastor call me a year. It was supposed to happen last year, but COVID killed it. And I was like, thank you, Lord. Um, because I'm seriously, this was, they had some issues with school boards and curriculum. And, and they heard they were going to do the first ever uh, and they were going to bring a preacher, and some people really weren't happy about it. And I told the person, I said, you know, in this day and age with what's going on, I supposedly I'm a King scholar. I've did my dissertations. I've studied uh, on the, um, you know, the whole movement. And I've lectured on Dr. King's uh, Sundays at universities and everything. But with everything going on in our country, I basically said to her, I said, you know, I, I love, there's nothing I'd more love to do, and I'll certainly be there. But maybe this is the kind of year where it's best to have a, African-American, a person of color, delivering that address. And she said to me, Chip, all of the African-American pastors and leaders down here asked for you. And I said, let me tell you, I told them, I said, for that reason, I will come, but I want to make sure there's armed security. <laughs> and I want to make sure about 50 of you are going to come there and have my back. Because I was telling Greg Jones in the front row, I'd like to come back to Garfield the following Sunday. So anyhow. But, but again, again, it's how do we throw open the doors of our hearts? How do we make room for each other? And we only do that as we make room for God. And it's got to be translated. And I love, I texted Scott this morning and I said, is this a fair assessment that you were saying until we allow God into all areas of our life and welcome God into all areas of our life, we will be pretty incompetent and unable to welcome all others into our lives. Right? And so today I'm, I'm picking up on that. And as he talked about welcoming God, who's the author of the universe, uh, I loved how he exegeted that psalm. I want to talk about specifically one aspect of God. One in Trinitarian language. We would say one person of God. How do we welcome the Holy Spirit? See, that's really important. You know, the, the House of Prayer team has taught me every time I begin to pray to say, come Holy Spirit. I'm gonna to add to that and say, welcome Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. In fact, we have a song that says, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And by the end of this message, you might go, mm, I'm not so sure. I really wanna welcome him in, right? But this is really, really important because after Jesus was raised from the dead, he walked into the room with frightened disciples who were still slaves to fear hiding in a room. And he said, you're not slaves to fear. You are a child of God, just like we heard sung from the stage. And what did he do? He breathed. And he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And after that, when he was getting ready to go away, he said, you know what? Wait for the Holy Spirit before you try to go out and do anything. Wait for him. And then Luke tells us, if you read Luke's gospel and he writes the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, something that's missed, a little phrase Luke says all the time. He said that these men and women and Jesus himself, they did these powerful and amazing things filled with the Holy Spirit. You can miss it, but he'll say, Peter filled with the Spirit went and proclaimed this. You know, Philip filled with the Spirit went down to Samaria. Jesus filled with the Spirit. You know, and he's saying that, you know, to be, we need to be filled with the Spirit. We need to be, I said on Christmas Eve, that God with us, that word with implied relationship, 
right? And, and the Father wants a relationship with us as children. Jesus Christ comes into the world as a manifestation, even willing to become flesh to be in relationship with us. And the Holy Spirit of God remains with us to be in relationship, to be received, to be waited on, to be welcomed, to be filled with. And then Paul says, don't quench it. In other words, don't shut your door on the Holy Spirit. Don't do like we do with other people. So welcoming the Holy Spirit. Now I have to say this, I am not gonna sit up here um, and do an exhortation or an explanation about Trinitarian theology. You know, and about, um, about okay, I know, that's my Princeton scholar up here. Um, in, in about two months, I'm gonna finish my dissertation. I have a whole chapter on Trinitarian theology. You'll be welcome to read it. But let me say to suffice, um, the Holy Spirit as a third person of the Trinity. What is the Trinity? The word Trinity is not in the Bible. It's not. But through the ages, the church has said, there is one God revealed to us through the history of salvation as, as preserved in the Hebrew scriptures, what we call the Old Testament and New Testament, but revealed to us in three ways, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, creator, redeemer, sustainer. Now, that's not all God is. Right? Whatever, I've learned this in my life, whatever and whoever you think God is, he's more. See, Paul thought he had God all figured out. He did. Well, Saul, the Pharisee, before he became Paul, he had a God all figured out. God was in the Bible. God was in the scriptures. If I just follow the law, if I do these things, then I get into heaven. God will answer my prayers, and I get to beat up all the people who don't. And then Jesus came into his life, and he destroyed all of his arrogance and his bigotry. And when he became Paul the Apostle, you know what he said in Ephesians 3.20? Hey, God is exceedingly abundantly able to do and be more than we could ever imagine or think. Isaiah says it that way. He says, God speaks to Isaiah and says, my ways are not your ways. Don't you try to cut me down to your size. Don't you ascribe me to your political party. Don't subscribe me to your little agenda for your life. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As the heavens are higher from the earth, so am I higher from you. And John Calvin, the great reformer, once said, God speaks to us like we speak to babies in goo-goos and gagas. God told Moses, if I show you all that I am what I am, it will blow your mind. It will explode your hard drive. So God is more, but... In the infinite wisdom of God, God related to us and gave us imagery as God is a father and we are children, as God is Jesus Christ, our redeemer and savior, God in the world, revealing God's mission for the world, and as the spirit of God that is the driver in the engine of creation and God's mission in the world. Now, you look at it for the, the spirit of God. Now, in Trinitarian theology, it's very interesting the probably the, the least understood of Father, Son, Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit. In fact, somebody just did a, a study of the hymns, Southern Wesleyan University, the hymns, the traditional hymns, and the uh, modern worship songs, and they say that the least person sung about is the Holy Spirit. Like 70% of all hymns and songs have Jesus in them. Only 5% have the Holy Spirit in them. And so we need to understand what is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God, it leaps off of every page of Scripture. In fact, in the very beginning, do you remember how the Bible starts? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit hovered over the deep. 
And in that moment, the Spirit of God moved. And that was the driver of creation. And at the very end of Revelation, the last few verses, it's still the Holy Spirit, the Spirit and the Bride saying, come, come closer, come with me, welcome me into your lives. And, and the Spirit is, is this driving uh, force in the universe. And, and usually in the New Testament, the apostles teaching, the Spirit is most socially, uh, especially talked about as the Spirit is working in and through the church because the church is the vessel for God's mission in the world and the Holy Spirit is the engine, right? Is, is moving in that. I went to a demolition derby at the Canfield Fair way back when, don't hate, don't hate. I grew up down there. I don't like country music, but they didn't always have country music. Gloria Estefan sang at the Canfield Fair, so I, that's my, that's my um, salvation. But they used to have this demolition derby. I was in my 20s, late 20s. I was around a business. I lived down there. Family would go to it. I was just getting ready to go off to ministry. And I watched this demolition derby. I'll never forget it. And here are these cars, you know, crashing around, running into each other, backing into each other, windshields falling off, uh, mirrors falling off, trunks falling off, bumpers falling off, tires going flat. But you know what? That car kept going until what was broken? The engine. And it was at that moment God gave me epiphany. Chip, the church has been driven really poorly. They've banged into things. They've dented things up. They've screwed things up. And, but let me tell you, everything can fly off the church as long as my Holy Spirit is at work in it. The engine will keep going. That's the only explanation you can say that after 2,000 years of some pretty poor driving, we're still here. Right? And I realized that the Holy Spirit, okay, is talked about in relation to God's work in the world. But I love John 16 because this is really one of the very few spots that Jesus cuts into. I can't believe I'm halfway through my time. Give me 10 extra minutes. I may need them. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. So I don't know where this is going to go. Hello. Um, but, but, you know, Jesus begins to talk about the Holy Spirit's work, not just in the church, but in the world and in us. And what we need to welcome to. See, too many th people think Christianity is a lifestyle. It's following rules, right? If I do this and this and this, then God will love me, and God will answer my prayers, and God will take me to heaven. That is religion. That's not the gospel. The gospel said Jesus has already done this and this and this, and you can't save yourself. So accept that. You've been accepted, and then you'll go out and live a different lifestyle. See, unless the Holy Spirit comes in on the inside, and that's one, one of our core values is transformation, uh, unless the Holy Spirit comes on the inside and begins to do some transforming work within us, that's when we become followers of Christ. And Jesus here has given them their mission. He says in, in John 15, he, he says, look, I'm sending you out to declare my, my gospel. And at the beginning of 16, he says, look, this is going to be a tough journey. You're going to go through a lot of things. They're going to persecute you. In fact, there will some people who will feel they're serving God and country by killing you. And now I want you to go out, but you're not going to go out alone. You're going to go out with the Holy Spirit, who I'm sending to you. I grew up watching Mission Impossible. Anybody ever watch that? Yeah, well, I used to watch it on TV. But even if you're a millennial, you've watched Tom Cruise, be honest. In fact, the, the seventh and eighth installments are coming out. Did you know this year? Uh, uh, Dead Reckoning is coming out. Episode 7 in July 23 and, and uh, part 2 in June 2024. 20, I like movies where they blow stuff up. Don't hate. Um, 
But so Mission Impossible is a long-running theme, and you remember the theme that, that uh, uh, this government agent, this secret government agent, they would go in there and they would get this little message, right? Back in the day, it was a tape recorder. Now it's on hard drives and, you know, through digital, I don't know, AI, I mean, whatever. But nonetheless, they would come out and they would say, look, we have a mission for you, and here's the mission. Go save the world, and there's a three trillion to one chance that you'll survive. And this is your mission if you choose to accept it. And then the first example of government waste, the tape recorder would blow up. <laughs> and they'd have to go get a new tape recorder every week. And, and, and the person on TV would smirk at this because they knew they'd be back next week. But as good as the TV was and the movies are, it's manufactured Mission Impossible. It's good special effects, it's manufactured. This is Mission Impossible. Jesus is calling ill-equipped people, illiterate fishermen. Read John 4, when they spoke, people said they're ordinary, uneducated man. One woman who had been plagued by seven evil, evil spirits, probably dealing with mental illness and spiritual oppression. Uh, a, a tax collector, a collaborator with the Roman Empire who's been transformed. A political zealot, hello. All these ill-equipped people are going out with an implausible message. This isn't a fun message. Hey, God loves you and he agrees with you and he hates all the people you hate and loves all the people you love. This isn't God like, oh, give God $1,000 and he'll give you a Mercedes. No, this is God who you surrender your life to and you become great by giving your life away. That's an implausible message. Why did anybody listen to them? And how did this Mission Impossible become a movement that overcame one of the greatest empires in the history of the world and grew like wildfire throughout the world without ever li lifting a sword? This is the Holy Spirit of God. Because God says, I'm sending you on mission to preach the good news, and I'm sending the Holy Spirit into the world and into you to do three things. Convict you of your sin, convict you of your righteousness, and the world and convict you of judgment. That's his job. Now, I want you to be clear. I, this is a little sidebar, but this is something I've had to learn as a preacher and a lot of us Christians have to learn. He didn't send the disciples out to convict people of their sin and righteousness and judgment. He sent the apostles out to proclaim the good news. And the Holy Spirit will convict people of their sin and righteousness. Do you know how many Christians are walking around today and preachers trying to convict people of their sin and righteousness and judgment? And anytime I creep into that, I feel God saying, like my daughter says, stay in your lane. <laughs> it is not your job. You are trying to do my job. It is, I told you what your job was to do. You are to wash feet. You are to heal the sick. You are to confront injustice. You are to comfort victims. You are to feed the hungry. You are to clothe the naked. You are to visit people in prison. You are to be my ambassadors. And on the night when I broke bread with you before I went into heaven I, and went to the cross, I told you I give you one commandment. You love other people the way I love you. Saints and sinners alike because you don't know the difference. In fact, you remember that parable where there was great wheat, a harvest, and the disciples slept, and the enemy came and sowed weeds in the wheat, and the disciples woke up, and they said, we will convict the harvest of sin, and we'll go get the wheat. And Jesus said, leave it alone. You wouldn't know a weed from a wheat if it hit you between the eyes. You go do your job. I will tend to the harvest. I will separate the weeds and the wheat. 
And the Holy Spirit is the one who goes out to convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So let me try to bring that home. There's a general way that the Holy Spirit does that in a particular way. I'm gonna try to get through this. Guys, you're gonna have to give me at least five more minutes, but I'll, I'll be okay. I just hate when that red light flashes. But anyhow, this is your mission if you choose to accept it. Make people stay 10 minutes longer and see if they want you back next week. Anyhow, I, I digress, but here's the point. The Holy Spirit will convict, right? In fact, our translation said prove wrong. You know what that word is? It's Jesus said, I will send the paraclete, is what it is in the Greek. Some uh, translate that advocate, some translate a comforter, some translate a counselor. Let me tell you, that word paraclete is amazing. It's a combination of two uh, Greek words. It's a soft, hard word or a hard, soft word. Uh, para means to come alongside, walk with us, be in relationship. Kaleo means to uh, kind of prosecute us to help us to see the truth. And, and, and the, the para we kind of like. We like God as a comforter, and he is. You know, um, I, there was an uh, African tribe where they uh, uh, were trying to translate that word paraclete, uh, counselor, comforter, into their language from the English. And they were having very difficult, they couldn't find one. And one day one of the translators saw from this African village, these men going out carrying you know, things for water and things on their head. And there was one person in a line that was carrying nothing. And so they said, oh, he must be the boss. And they said, no, he is the person who if anybody grows weary and exhausted and falls down, he will then quickly pick up their gear and carry it for them. And they found their word for paraclete as the one who comes beside. And the word was the one who falls among us. And Jesus Christ came and fell among us. And so there is that wonderful counselor. But a wonderful counselor doesn't just pat us on the head all the time. If there's somebody you love and a counselor that's worth their salt, they will help you understand the places where you might be being self-destructive. And you may be wounding yourself and wounding others, right? And so... Uh, if you love somebody and you see them doing that, you will challenge them. That word uh, kaleo means to convict. It means to cross-examine. It means to argue with, to help people see the things as they are. I have a confession to make. I have kind of white coat syndrome. I don't like to go to doctors. And I'll try everything I can do to not go to the doctor. And my wife does kaleo with me because she loves me. And she will say, Chip, like, you're, you're sick. No, I'm, I'm, I'm just temporary. No, I know you. This is not like you. This is, you know what she's doing? She's arguing with me because she loves me to help me get over my own stupid pride and see what's going on. Have you ever seen the movies? You know, I love the action movies and, you know, somebody having a protagonist is there and then they always fall in love, whether it's a male or female, right? They fall in love sometimes with the opposition, whatever. And at the end of the movie, here's these two people that are trying to escape and live through all the buildings falling down, the bombs going on. And there's a common theme in those movies. Usually they'll be going out and somebody will fall down or a piece of rock will fall on them or, or they'll get trapped with their leg as the flood's coming in and, and they'll say, go on without me. And the other person doesn't say, yeah, you're right. Stay there. You're done. Go away. No. They jump in the water. They, they pick up the building. And, say, and they grab mother's shirt and say, no, you will come. I will carry you. Everything will be well. Man, that seems like rough treatment. Why are they doing it? Because they love him. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. He comes in and he argues with us. And, and he, he challenges us. And he cross-examines us. That's wrestling. That's one of the first signs 
that you're really growing with Christ is that you feel something on the inside wrestling with you. If, if God always agrees with you, if God always votes the same way you vote, if God always uh, you know, under, agrees with you on everything of your understanding, that ain't God. That's a cardboard cutout God. God has the permission in my life to contradict me and disagree with me and sit me down when he needs to sit me down and kick me in the rear end when he needs to get me up. Now you're talking about a living God. And that's the first sign that God, the Holy Spirit is beginning to move in your life is there's wrestling. And when he, and see what the Holy Spirit does, it doesn't say he'll convict the world of their sins. Your conscience can do that. All of us know we lie and we cheat sometimes. I exaggerate. Some of you gossip like I don't. <laughs> right? We know that, right? Our conscience can tell us that. It doesn't say the, the word, you know, Holy Spirit will go out and convict people of their sins. It's going to convict them of their sin. What is their sin? Their sin is they think they're self-sufficient. They think they can go through life being their own Savior and Lord. And there are people who do that by thinking, well, I'm better than most people. This is the self-righteous person. I'm better than most people. I've raised my children well. I am faithful to my spouse. Um, you know, I, I, I serve the community. I take care of others. So, so, you know, so God will love me and answer my prayers and take me to heaven because I'm better than most people. That was like the parable Jesus told when the Pharisee, the preacher came in, the tax collector, and the Pharisee said, oh, I do all these good things, and I'm better than this tax collector over here. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? He comes in and says, you cannot save yourself. You are not, you are not able to save yourself. And, and, and you don't measure your life against others. You measure your life against me and, and my righteousness and my way of loving and forgiving and grace-based and service. And all of us pale in comparison. So he exposes us. Now, instead of the self-righteous person, what about the person with low self-esteem? The people with low self-esteem are people that basically uh, say, oh, I'm no good, I'm not worthy, God wouldn't want me. And the Holy Spirit comes into them and says, you're trying to be your own savior. You're trying to atone for your own sin. You're nailing yourself to the cross. Your, your salvation is not based on your performance. Quit doing that, right? Um, the Holy Spirit says that uh, you're, you've got sin in you, you need to go to God. Bad self-esteem says you're a sinner, so you can't go to God. And the Holy Spirit comes in and destroys that and says, come unto me, right? And what's our problem with uh, acknowledging our sin state, not our low sins, we know those, how those manufacture, but our basically sin state of rejecting God and trying to be our own Savior and Lord, it's because we're, unless we understand that we're broken and sinners, we will never be aware of our need for help. We'll never be aware for that. Let me tell you something. Have you ever had this situation I have? You know, um, you know, I turned 60 this past year. The only time I've taken a discount for that is on the golf course, by the way. Um, you know, I'm hard head. But I've been noticing as you get older and that, these younger people, you be at the airport or you're, you're going somewhere or coming to the rest, and these young people come up to you and go, can we help you? And I go, do I look like I need help? That's my reaction, right? See, when you don't think you need the help, and somebody offers you help, you can take it as an insult. Now, if you need a little help, if I'm trying to carry all the bags that my wife packs, and I'm going through the airport like a refugee, and somebody says, can I come up and carry one of those? I go, oh, that's nice, right? So if I don't need it at all, it's an insult. If I need a little bit, it's nice. 
Let me tell you, when somebody comes up to you and you are desperate for the help, they become your savior. And that's, that's where it is. You're, the level of us understanding and grasping, taking hold of the love of Jesus Christ is measured by the understanding of how desperately we need the help. And we need salvation. And it comes from Jesus and not from our performance. Let me go quick. The second one convicts us of our righteousness. What does that mean? Everybody's trying to be right. Everybody's trying to be presentable, right? We look in the mirror to make sure we're presentable. And how am I presentable in the world? Um, and maybe I measure myself if I'm presentable, if I'm respectable, if I'm right, by, sometimes by good things. How, how my, my accomplishments of my children, oh, that shows that I'm right, right? Um, you know, my career, oh, look at me, I've done all these things, I'm right. My physique, oh, I'm right. These are good things, right? But they're not ultimate things. And, and the Holy Spirit comes in and says, you are measuring yourself on your presentability based on, again, your own self-righteousness and performance. And I need to say to you that Jesus Christ has made you presentable to God. And no matter what the world says about you, you measure up in his eyes. Because it says, when we're with him, we shall be like him, right? And, 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 and so all of us repent of our sin. All are conscious in that. Here's the thing that I, the difference between being religious and being a follower of Christ, I wrote this down. Religious people and Christians, all of us repent of their sins, but Christians also repent of their righteousness. That, are, that is Christ's righteousness. Paul says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation. And he said, God has given us righteousness and we accept it by faith. See, we, we, we don't earn righteousness out of ourselves. We receive righteousness, and it means when we accept it by faith, that means the day we cease from trusting in ourselves for our salvation, and we trust in him. So convict us of our sin or righteousness. And when that happens, what will happen is then the, the Holy Spirit will convict us of judgment. Now, this is a particular one. Notice what he says. It will convict us of judgment because the prince of this world, that's a reference to Satan, devil, the prince of this world now stands condemned. That word can also be translated has been cast out. See, the word judge means to rule. And when the spirit convicts us of judgment, it says, who is ruling the world in the universe? Who is the world's true king? Who is the world's true ruler? And when we understand that that's Jesus, that Jesus won the victory on the cross, that no devil in hell could prevent him from forgiving and loving us, that he didn't come into the world to give judgment, but he came in the world to receive judgment and take upon himself what we deserve. And then therefore, because he humbled himself and was obedient unto death, even death on a cross, God has so highly exalted his name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess uh, in the earth, above the earth, under the earth, that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, when we do those first two things, 
when, we, when, we, when God delivers us of our sin of trying to be our own savior, when God delivers us of trying to earn our own righteousness through self-righteousness except, instead of accepting the righteousness of God that Jesus Christ has brought, when, we, when he delivers us from those two things, we can see that Jesus Christ has cast out the rulers of this world and we have received a judgment of mercy and grace and forgiveness and invitation to come unto him. And, on, and all of a sudden, you know what that means? We're safe. We're safe. We, under, we understand that. You know, I love how the band here, I, I think I'll get this on time, guys. I'm, hey, I've caught up. When the band was up here saying, all dear, we sing our hallelujahs. And Leah at the end was saying, we got to lift a hallelujah. What is that all about? What are we singing hallelujah? It says in Revelation 7 that they, they were saying Hallelujah. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and they were raising palm branches in their hand. It was a symbol of victory. We say hallelujah because what? Jesus Christ has won, and we're under that judgment, not the judgment of others, not the judgment of political parties, not the judgment of pastors and popes and religion. We are under the judgment of Jesus Christ who says, you are worthy when you come unto me. I make you worthy. You don't make yourself worthy. Quit trying to save yourself. Quit trying to be self-righteous. Accept what I have done from you. And when we get that, we know we're safe. And we can raise a hallelujah. Somebody say it. Hallelujah. Now, I'm just going to do a little test. How many of you in this room, be honest, in high school or in church or in college, or at least as a participant, you've either sang or heard the hallelujah chorus? Oh, come on, no, some of you are saying, no, I don't do the traditional thing, liar. You've heard it somewhere, right? What's the hallelujah course all about? Some say it was the greatest piece of writing that ever happened. And how did it happen? It happened with Handel. How many of you know uh, about Handel's life? Handel um, suffered greatly. He viewed himself an abject failure. He, he, he dealt with depression all his life. This is well documented. He was constantly ridiculed by his critics. He struggled with being overweight all his life, and the media and the papers drew cartoons of him exploiting that. He struggled with apoplexy, which is stroke symptoms that can occur out of the, out of, out of the blue because of bleeding in the brain. He went bankrupt twice and was bankrupt in 1741 when he told his friends, I'm done composing. And 24 days later, he composed the Messiah. How do you explain that? In the midst of that, I can only explain it by the work of the Holy Spirit that went into Handel's life and wrestled with him and convicted him of his sin. Handel, quit trying to write the greatest thing that's ever been written within your own brokenness. Quit trying to save yourself, right? And quit trying to make yourself presentable to your critics. Who cares they're, they're cartooning you? Who cares you're a little overweight? Who cares that, that you know, your critics are riddling you? Who cares that you've gone bankrupt? You are rich in heaven. And he convicted him of sin and righteousness. And I think at that moment, Handel was able to write in miraculous ways that I know that my Redeemer lives. That's what it says in that writing. And will walk upon the earth. He will be in my presence. And when he got to the crescendo, the hallelujah chorus, it is said that he was composing and he had an assistant that walked through the house because in case he had a bout with epilepsy, he would need to be attended to. And all of a sudden, there was been composing going on all day. And the assistant was told, don't ever go in that room while he's composing, right? You got to wait to be invited. But he, all of a sudden, he heard silence for like, 
for like three minutes and he began to call Handel's name and Handel never responded so the assistant thought he may be having a stroke and he, he went into that room after Handel composed the hallelujah chorus and Handel was weeping. And the assistant said, dear sir, what has happened? And he quoted, I did think I saw all heaven open for me. And the great God holding out his arms for me to come. See, Handel knew he was safe because he'd been convicted of his sin and convicted of righteousness. And only then could he sing hallelujah. Do you ever know what all the hallelujahs in the hallelujah chorus are about? There's not too many verses. If you've ever sung it or heard it, here's the verses for it. Can we throw them up there? We, he's singing hallelujah, what? For the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. That the kingdom of this world has become what? The kingdom of our Lord. The prince of, of, of this world has been cast out. It's the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. King of kings. Come on, everybody. Forever and ever. You're, yeah, all right. Uh, but, I, but I'm leading you, so you're like, dude, you can't sing, so help us. And Lord of lords, right? And he shall reign forever and ever. That's all the verse of it, and it all creates the hallelujahs because when we know we are safe in his judgment, and he has overcome all evil, and that he reigns forever and ever, then we know we're safe. We know we're safe in his arms. So friends, open your heart to the Holy Spirit. Open your heart. Say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. Even when you do the things I don't like. Even when you prosecute me. Even when you take me by the shirts and say, look, Chip, you're not acting like you. I didn't make you to be this petty. I didn't make you to be this mad. I didn't make you to lose your anger so quickly. I didn't make you to be this judgmental of your brothers and sisters when I wasn't judgmental of you. I didn't make you like this. I'm gonna cross-examine you. I'm gonna show you the holes, Chip, in your argument. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you the strategies that you're using to be acceptable when there's only one strategy to understand you've been accepted by me. I want you to welcome the Holy Spirit in, not just to comfort you, which he will, not just to dry, wipe every tear from your eyes, which he will, not just to teach you how to pray, which he will. It, it, Paul said, we don't even know how to pray as we ought. But the Holy Spirit will come, he'll do all those things, and we want all those things. But Holy Spirit, I'm inviting all of you to come in as parakaleo to walk with me and talk with me and love me and, and encourage me, but also when you see me going down a path that I shouldn't be going down, to prosecute me, to wrestle with me, to argue with me because you love me that much. That's what we need to welcome in before we can go out and do the hospitality welcoming work of others. So will you pray with me while as we close? Can we welcome the Holy Spirit together with today? Can we say like the House of Prayer tells us to say, come Holy Spirit? Can we have the courage to say, welcome Holy Spirit? And that means as we've said that, Lord, uh, Holy Spirit, we're placing a welcome mat out in the front door of our hearts. And we're saying, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come in and wrestle with me. Prosecute me. Cross-examine me. Argue with me. Convict me of my sin when I try to be my own Savior and Lord. Convict me of my righteousness when I seek to base my worth on my performance and not yours. And convict me in judgment to know that when I surrender to the conviction of my sin and my self-righteousness, then ultimately I'm safe in you. Lord, we lift that prayer in the strong name of Jesus. 
Let all God's people say, amen.